architects always want to be the trusted advisor with the client and they want to be able to be the arbiter and that's one of the things that some of these more sophisticated firms absolutely understand how to do. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're so excited to welcome Marjan Pearson. Marjan is founder and chief of Talentstar. She is an industry pioneer with the ability to ask the questions that should be asked on the strategic agenda of every design firm. She has experience working within and as an advisor to significant architecture and design firms, which I'm sure she'll mention along the way, as well as teaching at the executive education program at the Harvard GST. So we're in for quite a treat. She's an expert at framing specific talent and leadership needs, defining the roles to fulfill them and connecting clients with the right candidates for their context and culture, which is gonna be great because we're gonna be talking all about talent today. The company she runs, Talent Star, is a brain trust that brings a creative, integrative perspective to the business of design with expertise in recruiting and talent development, practice management and leadership development. Their clients are a remarkable constellation of signature architects, emergent practices, regional powerhouses, and corporate giants in the USA, Asia, and Europe. With this, I'm also glad to be joined by my co-host, Chris Morgan, from the Monograph team. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you so much, Marjan, for spending time with us today. It's my pleasure. As you know, I've been attending almost all of the sessions every Thursday, and I'm, I was delighted to be asked to be part of the program. Yeah, Thank I you. mean, I, I'm very excited for what you're going to share with everyone today. I believe you have a, a, a presentation to kind of go over to start. Yeah, I have, a, I have a few things to start with, and let me go ahead and do that. First of all, everyone, thanks so much for coming. I have a feeling that most of you know me really well. So make certain to ask lots of questions, because I couldn't do what I do without most of you. So going over here this morning, the first thing every morning, I try to do the mini, the New York Times mini crossword puzzle in under a minute, which is usually possible unless there's a lot of current pop kind of stuff, which I'm not as up on. But I thought it was interesting this morning that two of the key words came from physics, which is not my area of expertise. But one five across was mass times acceleration. And then one down was work plus time in physics. And of course, today's session was called Empowering Talent and Architecture. And I thought, how appropriate, right? And no, we're not going to force anyone to do anything. However, you know, going back to Star Wars, the real question is, how can we make the force be with us in everything that we do? And how can we take advantage of who we are, what we do? how we do it and why it matters in order to have a more significant influence on not only the built environment, but also our communities and our world. So that's all I want to do is, you know, let's, let's take over the world one step at a time. So that's number one. And then I thought that it would be good. The other thing that I saw this morning, first thing was the architectural record publication of the top 300 architectural firms for 2021. And I was looking at it, and actually, I was quite curious about it. So I'm going to come back to that in a second. When Flora Bao spoke two weeks ago, and it was a fabulous session, and you should all listen to the recording. She was just wonderful. She and George, and I think it was Joanne who was interviewing her, did a terrific job. And I actually called her up after I reached out to her afterwards on LinkedIn and said, could I please talk to you? And so we've had a lovely conversation and at our now knowing each other a little bit better and getting to know each other better. But in her presentation, she showed this diagram, this chart, which shows that in the 2017 survey, that 2018 report, 6% of the reporting firms that had 50 or more employees, they had a 6% share of the total workers. And of 51 of firms and 51% of the staff. And that was 2018. And we all know about all of the consolidation, merger and acquisition activity that's been happening since then. So it's gonna be really interesting when AIA does the next one to see how that is shifting. 
there's no question that we've seen a lot of consolidation and particularly on the what we call the service focused end of the spectrum. But the other thing that's quite interesting is this middle section, because one of the things that we've observed, and I'm going to flip to this one, I have a particular interest in this size firm, and probably because I've worked with so many of them and been in them. And what we're seeing is that firms of 15, 25, 35 people are doing the kinds of projects that it used to take a firm of 100 to do. And because they are smaller, they are more agile in many cases. They don't necessarily have the same resources availability that larger firms do. They can't have a a higher percentage of overhead. They need to watch the ratios, the balance. But they find ways to bring that expertise and the, the extra resources marketing financial, whatever it is, they find ways to bring it into their firms so that they're basically operating at the same level as a firm of 75 to 100 people. And it surprised me that firms of 20, 30, 35 people are, for instance, using Ajira, you know, as opposed to QuickBooks and really using project cost accounting methodology in order to manage what it is that they're doing and doing it well. So going back to the 300 top firms that was published today, what I thought interest was interesting was that if you scroll down to number 300, it's a firm of about 16 people that's generating about $4 million in revenues. I mean, I took $4 million in revenues and figured they're billing somewhere around $250,000 per employee in net service revenues. And that comes out to 16. It could be 200,000, which would make it more of a 20-person firm. But still, those firms are on that list. And it's a quantitative list as opposed to a qualitative list like the Architect 50. But you don't have to be a mega firm to be on it. That's the whole point. And so, and you don't necessarily want to be number 300, but it's quite different from the way it used to be. So things are changing every day. You know, the architectural profession is dynamic. And what we always try to do is to help firms understand what their options are. And I know that's one of the things that I've liked about Monograph as well, because you basically came in with a product that would give firms options that they didn't previously have in an automated and digital fashion. And of course, now you're developing these programs on best practices and future strategy that will be beneficial to firms of all sizes. Um, When I was talking with Chris and George, I brought this up. This is actually something that uh, Paul Nakazawa developed as part of his consulting and teaching in the professional practice course at the GSD. And we've been talking around these different things and he put it into, we had actually started talking about extended venues when Rem Coolhouse was writing books about retail and looking at, not just at working with a particular client, but looking at the concept of what business the client was in and the larger extended influence that a design firm or design thinking could have. And he originally did this in the context of the economy, what was happening in certain points in time. And so, you know, at the core of architecture is the craft, the master builder, the object, the creation of, you know, a finely tuned, beautifully designed and beautifully constructed and functional object that the client will love from the time they walk in the door. What happened over a period of time, and you know, certainly in the 50s and 60s, craft was at the center of most firms' raison d'etre. Um, what happened in the 70s and 80s, along with changes in the profession that had to do with the antitrust legislation from the Department of Justice, which changed the fee schedules and a lot of the business fundamentals of design firms. The other thing that happened was 
the development of marketing and adoption of marketing for professional services. Because up until that point, most everything we call marketing today was considered to be unethical by the AIA and the professional engineering services. You know, at that point in time in the mid-70s, architects couldn't discuss a fee with the client until the client had awarded the commission. And if you were to send out, I actually know a firm that in the early 90s sent out a postcard announcing that they had won a new project and they were called up in front of the New Jersey AIA Ethics Committee and they were fine. But at that point in time, there were people within the New Jersey AIA who felt that mailing out something about a new project was unethical behavior. So this development of specific expertise occurred at a time when it actually became possible to begin marketing it, to begin talking about it, to begin using it as a distinguishing characteristic, a differentiator in talking with clients and encouraging them to select your firm for a particular project. And as a result, firms began developing different silos of activity, different key people, different combinations of people in their models that would allow those people to be front and center with the clients and also to be ahead of the client in many ways, which meant building relationships and building knowledge at the same time. Strategy has always been part of design and design thinking, but as a component, as a paradigm, it really became important in the 90s. And we saw it with the market leader firms, HOK Sports, which is now Populous, that actually knew more than their clients did about how to design a successful downtown baseball stadium because their clients would only do one every 20 or 30 years and they would be doing them all the time. So they were able to understand the strategy behind it and to assemble a team of collaborators that were not necessarily in the design business, the financial, economic, social, political, whatever it was, in order to put help the client create a total project, not just an object. And certainly, we saw it in the workplace market, which was had not been called the workplace market, which was named by Gensler. And Gensler started with bookmarking of law firms, of information about the design of law firms. And from that, they have become an absolute powerhouse of research, information, strategy, workplace strategy became its own subset, you know, and there are strategy elements of many different market sectors now. But it was really at a point in time, and then firms had to adapt to that because they had to compete against firms like HFA Sport or Gensler in whatever business the client happened to be. Issues is another really interesting one because there's so many issues that are part of every project. But again, you know, the time that I really recognized it was with the World Trade Center. And when there was all of the discussion about what should go there, who should design it, uh, you know, Daniel Liebskind was selected, and then all of a sudden, it was David Childs. And, you know, looking at it from a historical kind of perspective, there are so many firms that know how to do high-rise office buildings, you know, many of them in New York, and they're all over the world. We have super tall buildings all over the world. but. There were not that many firms who were able to traverse all of the competing issues for that specific project. You know, emotional, political, personal, financial, you name it, at security, you name it, that site had it. And so they were able to address those and of course, it didn't hurt to know the developer, to have a relationship with the developer. But it's not surprising that they were selected for that project. Because if you were to do a side-by-side comparison or you know, a, some kind of a, a diagram, if you started looking at different types of issues, I would imagine that SOM would be at the top in the majority of them. So this is, is where we practice today. 
and firms are operating from craft all the way out to issues. I was talking with a client the other day that had interviewed for a community center project and, you know, not a very large community center project. And political issues came into play in terms of the selection of architects. That a couple of days later, I was talking with someone else who, or I was reading something about third location workplaces. So like we work, but the rise of the business of creating alternate work locations that are not traditional offices. Uh, the hotels are doing them, restaurants are doing them, all kinds of things are doing them. And what do people want in a space where they want to go and work? And that could very easily be put in a community center. You know, so was that even part of the conversation? It's an issue that might have been leveraged. And perhaps it was. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I think that firms of all sizes can look at this, see where they are, see what they focus on, and begin to look at what's going to matter most when they're talking with the client or and who else do they need to bring into it in order to complete the collaborative set the collaborative brain trust to work with that client on that project so i can stop there i can continue i that could do anything you'd like what would you guys like to do next <laughs> um, i i mean that's that's really fascinating these kind of four areas of focus i'm curious if Going back to the kind of small, the medium-sized firm, where do you see the medium-sized firm? You mentioned like it's much more nimble, can develop projects that maybe a hundred-person firm could. Do you see any trends on like where the areas of, of focus is on that? Like when we mean a hundred percent, a hundred-person firm, do we include those issues of like the actual section of issues in that and strategy, or is that really like still kind of in the world of craft? And the fourth one, the, the one between the craft. Expertise. Expertise. Craft, expertise, strategy, issues. Do you see it kind of sits in that realm or are you seeing firms that can, even at that kind of 49 person office, can cut across the entire stack? Oh, I'm seeing firms of 20 that are. Absolutely. A lot of it has to do with what you have opted to do in your practice, what you have the bandwidth to do, what your real interests are. Hmm. And what more you want to do. And, you know, it really does depend on the vision and ambitions of the founders. And how do they want to take that forward in their practice? Hmm. I have a, a friend who's now retired. I wrote an article about an architect who paints that's on the spotlight section of Talent Star, Ruthie Glass. And Ruthie spent most of her career working first with Perkins and Will and then on BBJ. And then she met her husband who had his own practice, joined him, and they had a small community-based practice. But she, her expertise was all large-scale, scientific, higher education kinds of projects. And so that's what she continued doing by finding the right partners to do it with. Similarly, you know, one of the clients that we've been working with in the last few weeks is working on huge projects that have major significance at the issue, at the strategy and issue level, but they're doing it by partnering with other people who can add expertise that they don't have. And so it's part of being a learning culture, I think, as well as being a collaborative culture and recognizing that, that you can focus on what you like to do, or you can find another way to do other things that are different. And they're both fine. They're both good. But, you know, we have a number of clients that are in that mid-range that are seriously doing work in all of the, all of the paradigms at all scales. Martina, do you have similar to how you frame this model of practice? Do you have a similar model that you present to firms to help them understand the relationship between this like strategy of delivery, which is related to like positioning, like market positioning, and then the underlying value creation and inherent ability of talent. How do you sort of triangulate those different aspects of 
the core part of practice, right? You have these like four levels you have, and that could be thought of like from a marketing perspective, like positioning, like you're talking about what is the client's need and how to orient around the client need. But then there's also looking at your talent base or looking at your inherent ability to deliver in a unique way. I'm just curious, like, because I think that you've got this business strategy component, which I think at first I thought we were talking about talent. Well, in reality, we are. I'm just curious how you think about like wh- which comes first and how you talk about talent in general. Well, talent is it's at the core of everything in the design industry. When we first started teaching at the GSD, the course name was the Talent Driven Firm, Building a Competitive Advantage. And then the second part of it was the, you know, again, the talent-driven firm creating your future. And you can't do that without the talent because the, the talent is the leadership, is the organization. And then the question is, what framework do you use in order to actually mobilize all of those people? And let me just show you a couple of things. I don't know if Tom Jacobs from Crick Sexton is on the here or not, but actually we've done a lot of work with Crick Sexton partners around this particular issue. Let me just share, present this so you can see it a little bit better. So basically there are four levels of leadership in any firm. It doesn't make any difference how large the firm is. What happens is in small firms, people wear multiple hats, but there's always the focus on the projects because the projects are the engines of whatever it is that you're doing. And then there's always the fiduciary responsibility because whoever is the owner has, you know, the responsibility for financial and legal risk. And so those two, these two things are always in balance. What happens with most firms as they grow is that they focus on the practice, which has to do with these things, business execution, client revenue mix, value propositions, talent capability mix, you know, et cetera. And then there's a shift that happens that has to do with marketing strategy, financial strategy, human resources strategy, etc. And often that's a leap that happens as the firm grows, but you don't necessarily have it when the firm is at a smaller size because they can't afford it. And what's happening now is that there are individuals who are providing that resource for smaller firms. And so now smaller firms can take advantage of it. You know, Withy Malcolm in Los Angeles is a really good example because they have, I think, two overhead people, quote unquote, overhead people, one of whom is the CFO and the other is an administrative manager who also is involved with marketing. But they have a team for their marketing business development of consultants. And there's a wonderful graphic designer, there's a wonderful marketing strategist, business development person, and then there's another person who is really responsible for communications, public relations, and content promotion of the firm. And they've done very well with that model and actually were just acquired by a larger firm that's based in the Midwest and is is acquiring firms in California. And... My understanding is that the team that Withy Malcolm assembled is going to continue with the new acquiring firm because they are very successful at what they do, even though they aren't full-time people, you know? So that's an example of how firms can take advantage of talent in ways that doesn't have to be employed in a 40-hour workweek model. The other thing I was going to show you is that in an org model. And this is what most small firms look like, where you know there's a founder of principles, and then there's someone who's responsible for the marketing stuff. And there's someone who's responsible for the operations stuff. And the financial may be done outside as opposed to inside, or it may be in one or the other of these positions. And then there are project architects or project managers who take responsibility for projects. And then there's a core group of projects, the, as I said, the vehicles that are creating the business for the firm. And then typically there's a functional role that crosses with the project architect, project managers to make certain that everybody is using the same technology, 
you know, what do they need? How are they doing in staffing? How are they doing in terms of project performance and profitability and all of those kinds of things? And that's a typical small firm model. In 1998, <laughs> I was reading a Harvard business management article, an interview with James Brian Quinn, and he was talking about the Starburst organization. I looked at this and I thought, this is how design firms are organized. You know, it's not the, the clients want to see the hierarchical chart because they want to know who reports to whom and who they get to talk to in order to get things solved. But this is the way design firms actually operate. And, you know, there's the central core competencies of the firm that are allocated to project teams or studios or whatever your organizational model is. And then, you know, when there's a new operation, new project type or new client or new location or whatever it is, there are resources that are delivered out. And it's important for the resources to be delivered back to the firm in terms of knowledge and revenues and profitability, because that's the way that the organization grows, not just the business. The challenge of this is that there's no communication. Everybody's separate. Everybody's, this is for a management consultancy where there doesn't, there wouldn't necessarily be collaboration, coordination, communication across the various consultants. But in design firms, that's not going to work. And, you know, then I showed you the small firm model. This is what happens in design firms that you move into a spiderweb organization where you do have that central core competency, but now you're actually creating these nodes and the nodes all talk to each other. You know, you have to create an energy grid of infrastructure so that you can plug and play. You know, about six years ago, I was asked to take on the role of managing director for a hundred person luxury design firm. And there was no real infrastructure. And so one of the things we said was, okay, where's the energy grid? They had procedures, but they didn't have an energy grid that all of the project architects, project designers could plug into in order to get what they needed in order to do their work. And so that's what we worked on for the next year and succeeded. This is an evolution and this is a, a functional diagram that is currently being used by one of our clients, Crick and Sexton, Crick Sexton Partners now. It's an evolutionary model. It is not where we started, but it is very close to where we have come, where there are shareholders with the fiduciary responsibility. There's an executive committee that takes on fiduciary operations responsibility that's linked to an ongoing steering committee. So this group doesn't have to meet every week, you know, because there's a commonality of membership, but this has additional people. And they went from not really having a marketing person to having a director of marketing. It was a gradual progression over a three-year period. And they went from having a bookkeeper to having a financial manager. And again, it was a gradual progression but it's been very, very successful. And then all of the principles are active in the performance of the work. So there's a design operations function. One of the principles sits in that role and works with the other principles and project managers. And of course, they continue to do beautiful work in the projects. So this is a way of looking at the talent that you have, how everybody's working now, and what can you do to optimize it? What can you do that will make it easier to work? How can you improve communications? How can you ensure that you have the right energy grid and the right knowledge to be able to do whatever it is that you need to do on a regular basis? And I think that that's actually one of the things that is challenging for design firms because, you know, for many years, there was no financial information shared below the owner's level. And, you know, if you go into other kinds of adjacent spaces, businesses like WeWorks or, or whatever, that's all transparent. You know, everybody knows what they've got to do and what it's going to, how it contributes to the overall success of the firm in terms of portfolio as well as economically. And Tom, if you're here, I hope I'm not giving too much information. They'll interview you another time and find out more. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think this is, is mind-blowing for me. This is really great to see it all kind of laid out this way. I'm super fascinated by the transition that it takes to go from the small firm to medium-sized firm. I think a lot of small firms 
might look at where the the organization of the medium size firm and not actually really know where to start in some way. Like, what is the right order of operations and which one should, you know, either start to reorganize themselves? And I know you mentioned those kind of like a multi-year process, even to get from where maybe um, Kirk Saxon Partners was as a mid-size firm already to that new organization. But there's the introduction of new roles potentially that might intimidating. I mean, I think think for a lot of small firms, it's already intimidating enough to know who to hire next in general. What would you say about that, that transition? Because the way you're, the way it's being framed, at least with, with the kind of mid-sized firm is that, you know, the investment does pay off, which I think is a a big question probably for a lot of people that might already be mid-sized and don't understand what that transition actually means for people or as an outcome for the business. So maybe you can walk us a little bit through that from the small firm to like the medium side, the hesitancy there and what could be, what basically do, does a small firm need to understand in order to make that commitment? And then also even from the medium size as well. It's a good question. It's a complicated question, but it's a good question. I mean, the simple answer is change management is hard. You know, everyone says nobody likes to change, but that's not true. People go out and buy new lipsticks all the time, you know? So what we don't want is for our lives to become more difficult. What we do want is to have everything work better, you know, to have the right people to work with and the right tools to work with and make it easy to, as I say, plug and play, et cetera. Actually, I noticed that my friend Scott has a question about can a firm get too big? And, you know, one of the problems that happens with larger firms is that sometimes they become so complicated that there's a loss of intent of why they're in business to begin with, or there are conflicting reasons, you know, and Scott, if he were speaking, would say that he's been in a firm that was acquired and by what, 20,000 employee company with a CEO that came out of the gas and oil industry. And, you know, that's a lot of change. And we've seen that happen. And we've seen what happens when it does change. For any firm of any size with closely held ownership, Any change is significant change because inevitably it involves that person moving towards something as opposed to doing what they've been doing that they enjoy. And the only way change happens, effective change happens, is when people actually want to cross the river. You know, and I'm actually I'm going to use this crazy biblical story for you. For a while I was singing in a local church choir. And I didn't love the pastor, but every now and then she would do a talk, a sermon that I thought was really interesting. And I didn't realize that in the Bible, when they talk about 40 years, they don't actually mean 40 years. What they mean is multiple generations. And so when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they wandered in the desert for 40 years, right? But It was enough time so that when they finally reached the promised land, the only people alive were people who had been born in the desert, other than Moses and Aaron and their immediate family, who were the ones who were leading this. And so they had all of those years in order to change the dynamic of what they as a group were going to do. You know, most of us in design firms don't have 40 years to do that. And particularly in a firm like the one you're going to talk to next week that went from 17 to 71 people in seven years. RMW, which was the firm where I was a partner, we went from 15 to 85 in five years. And we didn't do that all correctly. And we did have problems. We hired, you know, we were talking about having five new people every Monday and looking for talent. And you don't necessarily hire the people that are going to end up being the right people. But what happened with RMW, which is such a wonderful thing, is that there were changes at the top. One of the founding partners left and the other founding partner was able to take the firm in a direction with new generation of partners. And the next president, Tom Griffin, was well-liked came from a design background to management, was trusted, had great knowledge, had great mentors from outside the firm, and did a fabulous job. And they're now in their 10th generation of ownership. They've just added their 10th group of new owners to the firm. 
for a firm that was founded in 1970 and did their first transition in 1980. So it's all about change management. And we all have to learn how to become change managers because we have to be able to talk to people and talk with people and listen to people about why it's hard to change and what we can do to help make that happen. And it doesn't make any difference whether it's operations or whether it's diversity and inclusion. It's all change management. We've talked about like restructuring, especially looking internally, but sometimes or more often than not, perhaps there's a lot of having to bring new people in to the firm. So looking out in the market, finding who in the market, maybe they're not even in the market, maybe they're not looking, who's excelling or maybe would excel at a firm that needs the help and is looking for bringing you know, a new person on, maybe especially a leadership, like new leadership role, let's say. I'm curious, could you talk a little bit about how you advise on this and how you have like a view over the market of you know, excellent people, how you go finding excellent people who may even not be looking and putting them in the right place? <laughs> because I, I find that I, I'm thinking too, when you're going through this process, what's your sense for how misplaced talent is in the general market, like in terms of firms that are maybe changing too slow, where there's talent that wants to grow, but is kind of capped and needs to find a firm that wants to grow, but is looking for people to help. That's about five different questions all in one. So let me try and take a couple of them. First of all, ever since I've been doing this and I've been doing it for a very long time, I don't normally you know, bring actual years into this, but I've been doing recruiting since 1982. And before that, I was a partner in an architectural firm, a small firm that grew. And before that, I was at SOM, where I always say I got my MBA in design firm management. So I myself have a lot of experience working within design firms, seeing different people, see what worked, what didn't, you know, whether it's the leadership level or the talent level. You know, I can honestly say that it has not been a winner every single time that I personally hired somebody or when I recommended somebody to be hired. Sometimes it's because we didn't do a thorough enough job of evaluating the culture, cultural issues. And by that, I'm not talking about, you know, what country they come from or anything like that. I'm talking about the way it core values and method of approach to the work. Firms often, when they want to hire somebody in a management role, they look at firms that they see are better managed than their own. And when they want to hire designers, they look at firms that they feel are designing better than their own without recognizing what the impact that may be on the person or on the firm. And if I had $5 for every design director who was hired by a large service-oriented firm, and told me that it was going to be fine because they promised him that they really wanted to change the quality of their work. I wouldn't be working today. <laughs> well, I'm not working today. I'm doing it for fun. So obviously part of that work. But you know, the reality is that what we wish for is not necessarily what's going to come true. And I know that there's a wonderful book called Hiring Smart by Pierre Mornell that I absolutely recommend. It's beautifully designed. It has like 45 points. It's easy for everybody to read. Everybody should own a copy of it. It walks you through how to interview people. You know, I don't understand how people can interview designers and not have a conversation about how they would design something and, and ask them to sketch something. I think that firms do that. I know a firm that was interviewing for directors of design and they never looked at the person's portfolio. And this was before websites. You know, they never talked about why did he make the decisions that he was making or what was important to him. And so half of it is objective. Half of it is intuitive. It's not transactional. It's a relationship. You have to spend the time to talk with somebody to figure out, you know, what their modus operandi is and to figure out if it's going to work with yours, and if it isn't, what adjustments you might need to make. And I think there are some firms that do this incredibly well, where they actually have lots of interviews 
with somebody before they make a final decision. And there are other firms that are simply trying to get another person in the door. So as you know, I've worked for firms that have been both acquired and done some acquiring. One in particular that got acquired grew too quickly and struggled with being a firm of 90. They were ultimately acquired some time ago, much first design, created a new set of problems. I have written about acquiring and acquired firms. The process for mergers and acquisitions has often been flawed, as you know, creating its own set of problems. Can you comment if that process has gotten to a better place currently, Ramine? Phyllis is one of my best friends. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, Phyllis. And you're right, you know as much about this as I do. We should have you talking. The answer is yes. And I can point to one firm that in particular is doing a really good job, and that's Perkins and Will. And as you know, they have been acquiring firms. They are very strategic in terms of what is it that they want to bring into their firm, and then what are the characteristics and qualities and portfolio and clients of the firm, and who are the people leading the firm. And then they spend a lot of time not only doing the due diligence in terms of financials, which is actually very important, but also looking into each person and how that person would integrate into their firm. And it has not always been perfect. And I don't think they would mind me saying this. A lot of people know that they've acquired, I think, four firms in San Francisco in order to get to where they are today. But they were also very clear about how it was working and what they could do in order to make it more successful. And their process of communication, collaboration, and development within the firm is one that is conducive to the addition of new individuals, the addition of new groups, and the integration of all of that into an existing firm. There are other firms that I've seen that say, oh, I want to open an office in, you know, XYZ, they look for a firm and they talk and everything seems fine. And then they don't really want to be doing what that firm is doing. And actually, the best example of this is from more than 20 years ago, which was when back in the early 90s, there were three primary interior design firms doing commercial interiors. One was Gensler, one was Environmental Planning and Research, and one was ISD. And we know what's happened with Gensler. They've grown, as far as I know, never actually acquired another firm. It's all been organic growth. ISD had a financial failure and were acquired by uh, Epstein, became ISI. And then uh, EPR was acquired by CRS. Now, CRS is its own interesting story because it was a spectacular design firm, architecture and design firm in Texas that did really brilliant work from the year, all of those things. And then they started going into construction management. They started adding engineer, big engineering firms. They decided that they wanted to go into the interiors business. So they acquired EPR. And within three years, there was no interiors practice anymore because they couldn't leave it alone. It was different from the way they practiced. They couldn't leave it alone. And so there was about six months where nothing changed. And then every Monday, there was an edict about, okay, now we're going to do this and new people being hired to implement that. And what has happened is that those firms, the leaders that left, created interior architects, studios, wrapped in San Francisco. I mean, there's a whole group of excellent interiors firms that resulted from that problem that happened in the acquisition process. So they, they knew how to be successful, but it wasn't in alignment with what the acquiring firm was interested in doing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's fascinating how it plays out too in, um, in other industries where you have that the acquiring company leaves the company that they're acquiring alone and branding and everything, they don't really touch it. They let it operate under its own P&L and they're, they're buying it for some other strategic reason, you know, all rolls up to the main entity, but keeping it separate has also been an interesting way of, of preserving the talent, not only the talent, but also the culture, especially. No. There's actually an article called Managing a Disruptive Change that Clayton Christensen wrote in the Harvard Business Review that is from the 90s that is about this problem. And it's still a really excellent article. 
Can we go to John Parman's question for just a second? And of course, another friend. And John said, with regard to the uh, practice paradigm that I was showing in the beginning, he said, clients also have to figure in Paul's diagram, especially to understand anything missing in the architect's offer and potentially supplement it from the client's end. And as not surprisingly, that's a very wise comment, but it is also part of the architect's opportunity to help the client understand, you know, and this goes to the relationship, which is a whole nother conversation. But, you know, architects always want to be the trusted advisor with the client and they want to, you know, be able to be the arbiter of all kinds of different decisions. And part of our responsibility as consultants, as advisors, is to help our clients understand what they're missing, whether it's talent or leadership or organization or expertise or the collaborative group necessary in order for the client to have a successful project. And if you have the right relationship, then you have the opportunity to have a real conversation about it. But you do need to understand how to present it and how to articulate it and, frankly, sell it. And that's one of the things that some of these more sophisticated firms absolutely understand how to do. It feels like that issues component really helps to address that because it suggests that it's not just it's a multifaceted sense of um, play on the word. Like it's about the site, but all the people who live in it, all the stakeholders in general and what their goals and ambitions are for the goal of a project. So we have a couple more questions and then uh, we'll, we'll end with uh, our favorite one here on the, I guess the podcast now. So we'll start off with the first question. What are your thoughts on a hierarchical organization structure for ARC firms, size around 80 people? We have a very flat structure aside from the president and CEO. I guess the question might be like whether it's more beneficial or, you know, is a flat structure uh, a, probably a better approach? Okay, I'm going to be iconoclastic here and say, I don't think the design firms are hierarchical. That's one of the things that I said earlier. And I think that you may have a hierarchical organization in terms of, you know, working with clients and helping the client understand who they're going to talk to and who's going to be responsible for whatever. But I've seen, I've seen very successful firms in hub and spoke works really well. Hub and spoke is something that it comes out of the IT world as opposed to the architectural world. And I'm going to share one more image here. IT people understand this because this is how they support firms by creating hub and spoke. You know, the reality is that you're always going to have a fiduciary level because you have to have that for your corporate governance. And you need to have an enterprise level that is figuring out where the firm's going to go next. And that doesn't mean that they live there, but they have to at least convene in order to look at strategy and begin to create the future of the firm. But, you know, all of their work is done in this kind of a non-hierarchical environment. And, you know, there may be kind of reporting responsibilities. But if you look at Warren Bennis's Great Groups, which is a wonderful book, or, you know, any of the books about how teams really work effectively, it's best to select people for positions in which they have great skill and to provide guidelines and ground rules. Let smart people be smart. Autonomy, right? It's like super important. Yeah. 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 Okay. Last question here. What do you think about firm that does not want to train or raise a young generation of, you know, new employees, but hoping to get ready experienced practitioners? Is that a strategy or is that practical? So instead of grow, instead of trying to train from within, yeah. always looking outward. I honestly have not seen it work. I think that there are situations where a firm provides a, something that is truly an unusual capability that requires substantial expertise. And it would be hard to develop that they actually do need to find another way to create a pipeline of people to come into that firm. But I would be really surprised that that was a successful model. This has been amazing. I'm going to end with with the last question that we always ask on here. You might already be familiar with it. What is the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for you? 
Well, everyone who knows me knows that I really do cry at the drop of a hat. So we're not going to go into too much detail. I just have to say, and you can hear me choking up, that through the pandemic, everyone was so nice. You know, I mean, I live in this wonderful town in Sonoma, and I had so many people who were watching out for me and taking care of me. And that truly is, you know, every day there's someone who does something nice, and I try to reciprocate. Uh, thank you. Sorry. Uh, no, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's always a question that we enjoy asking because we like to sort of we we dive a lot into the into the business aspect, but we always we very much care about being very human. And so, I really appreciate your very very human answer uh, and for sharing that with us because you know, I mean, it's very much shared how how important it is to be nice to people and the fact that people have been nice to you has been been great. Um, yeah, I have been so fortunate my entire life. Truly. I mean, wonderful mentors, wonderful friends. It's blessed. Well, and by the way, John did mention Team of Teams in the chat, and that is indeed a terrific book. So I recommend that one too. And there's so much more, Marjan. We are stopping this early. I mean, there's so much more <laughs> to talk about. And that's why we're so excited to have you on in a month for Section Cut. Very excited. Announcing it here, but more details to come. But Marjan, we are very excited for part two of this conversation. Well, I'm excited too. And if anyone has any ideas about things that you want to hear, because I can also help them with speakers and and topics and things like that. So um, this is definitely discussion and not a one-way thing. If anyone wants to reach me, you know how to find me, mp at talentstar.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Amazing. Well, thanks so much, everyone. I'm just going to I'm going to end with one final note uh, just to give a quick shout out to Monograph. At Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations and back office management for small to medium sized firms. Monograph is designed by architects for architects. It's a great way to actually see a unifying vision of your firm in one easy and beautifully designed solution. Helps you understand where you are on any given project, anytime, any day, where your schedules and budgets look like near real time. You can start a free trial today by going to monograph.com and signing up for a free trial, or you can join us for our live demos on Friday with Robert, our CEO. Every Friday, he walks through the product and answers any questions that you might have. So it's a real, you know, it's a real privilege opportunity to be able to talk directly to the founder. We'll add a link to the chat here and hope to see you there. Marjan, thank you so much. It's been awesome. I am so excited for Section Cut for having you there as well to continue this conversation. Chris, as always, thanks so much. And as well, everyone that joined us here today, thank you so much for your time today and uh, hope to see you soon. Cheers. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, we got a, a comment from Julia Gamalina. Wonderful talk. Thank you all so much. Marjan is amazing. Absolutely. I love Julia. Thanks so much. Everyone. As I said, it's probably all my friends. You know, what can I say? <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thank, Thank you, you, Julia. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.